So I, I hope you guys know the blessing that we have week after week. And I know the group that's up here, the band and those leading worship have gone to the side, but I think we just need to thank the Lord for them. Can we just thank the Lord for these incredible people who lead us? I know you guys are backstage right now, but we're applauding uh, God's hand in you. And I, I, I love it. Right now, if you're watching online, you know this. You got Chris Surigao up here leading in worship. You got his brother Zur out there doing the online ministry who comes up and preaches. It's the Surigao show, and I love it. God has blessed that family tremendously. I love seeing Mata over there on the drums, just going wild after it. Her husband is taking pictures, Caleb. It's just crazy, the talent that God has brought to this church. And I, I, I know, I, people tell me all the time when they come and visit, like, you guys don't know what you have here. This, what God is doing here is tremendous. And all that's great. But what I love hearing the most is when people say, uh, I, I know there's a lot of talent and all that, but I met with God today in this place, and I'm not the same. They're, they're, praise God. One person over here, Dean is happy about it. No, I, 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 this morning I was meeting with somebody in the other service, and he was a first-time guest at his gift bag, and I was just talking with him. He said, yeah, I'm, I'm here because uh, uh, there's a friend of mine who's been coming to your church, and he's just a different man. He's been coming for a few months, and I just had to go to see what changed him. And I was able to tell him, well, it's not this place. <laughs> it's the Lord Jesus Christ who changed him, and you can find him too. It was just an awesome conversation to have over there in the other service. And here's the reason why I need to make that point of clarity. Because you guys are awesome. I love you. But y'all are so screwed up. So am I. Like, people of God, human beings, we are, we are just, we're just messed up people. What I love about it is we don't have to pretend. We don't have to come over here and act like we're all pretty and everything's together. We can recognize that we're screwed up and we can still come be the people of God. It, it's interesting to me because one of the things I've noticed is that even in a church like this one, which is just a great church, I deal with so much conflict as the pastor of this church, day in and day out, week in and week out. And no one warned me that this is what pastoring was going to be like. I went to seminary. I did my, I was supposed to be three. I took four years. I did a slow track to get through seminary. And never once in any one of my classes did anybody say, hey, just want to forewarn you. Half your job is going to be prayer and preaching. The other half is going to be dealing with conflict. But it's, that's the way it works out. It's, this, is, this is my daily dose. I, I have conflict all over the place. And, and it's, sometimes it's with me. I mean, I, there has never been a Sunday I've stepped up in the pulpit and spoken that I haven't offended somebody. And most of the time, I don't mean to. Every once in a while, maybe. But most of the time, I don't mean to offend people, but I do because it's just this group of people, people online, all that, like I'm going to say something that's going to make somebody upset. There's going to be some conflict. But that's not actually the, the majority of the conflict I deal with. The majority of the conflict I deal with is with you in between each other. I do marital counseling uh, fairly frequently. And when I deal with marital counseling, it's usually one or both of them going, I don't know what's wrong with my spouse, but she just won't get her act together. He just won't fix this. And it's conflict constantly in marriages in our, in our church. This conflict that we deal with is parents all the time. I meet with tons of parents going, help me. My child or my children, I, I, they're just, they're rebellious. They're out of control. They don't respect me. What do I do? It's conflict after conflict after conflict. Or, or it's a community group, and I'll meet with the leader, and they're going, my goodness, man, they just like, they're so sensitive, and they get angry at each other all the time. There's, all these things keep breaking out. What do I do, Jason? Just conflict, conflict, conflict. And then I get home after a day filled with conflict. You know what I find? Conflict. 
I got six kids. There's always some kind of conflict going on. They're fighting with each other, fighting with their mama. They're fighting with me. I'm like, I just got home. Like, why are you fighting with me? But it's just filled to the brim with conflict. And, and I just, it's a weight sometimes that I get exhausted from carrying. But I've also discovered, man, this ain't, this ain't my, my only cross to bear, like alone. You have the exact same problem I have. I'll do a little experiment in here. How many of you guys are married or you've been in a relationship for at least a year with somebody else? Raise your hand. You're married, you've been in a relationship for at least a year. Okay, you can put them down. How many of you who raised your hand have had some conflict with your significant other within the last month? Raise your hand. Okay, that's the majority of you. Those of you who didn't raise your hand are afraid you'll get in conflict if you raise your hand. So you're like, oh, no, no, don't do it, don't do it. But I saw your shoulder move. I, I know where you're at. Yeah, but there's conflict in every single relationship. Or, or here, here's a, maybe an easier one. How many of you in here are parents with children living at home? Raise your hand. If you're a parent, we live in, yeah, you know where I'm going with this. Okay, how many of you within the last week have had some conflict with at least one of those children of yours in the home? There's more people raising your hand now than did just a second ago. I don't know how that works. Like you've had conflict with children that don't even live in your home, I guess. I don't, I don't know, but nonstop conflict. Okay. How many of you in this room, get ready to raise your hand, you, uh, you have uh, an employer, like a boss or a coworker or a friend or a neighbor, you know somebody, raise your hand. If you, okay, if you don't raise your hand, that means you live in a cave somewhere. <laughs> like you're in a relationship. Okay, you should have raised your hand. How many of you who raised your hand have had conflict with somebody over the last month? Raise your hand. Okay, that's the majority of you. Here's, here's what I'm trying to prove. 100% of you, if you are a human being, have conflict with another human being. It is across the board. But conflict is a weight that can feel like a, a millstone around your neck, as Jesus put it, that will cause you to drown, to be utterly overwhelmed. Conflict, trouble with another human being is one of the places that most creates anxiety in us. Talk to any parent who's having conflict with their children Maybe you've heard the expression, you're only as happy as your most unhappy child. Like the, the relational dynamics affect you tremendously. Or if you're married, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. I know that's true in my world. If there's conflict, then it affects every bit of you. You can't even experience happiness when you're drowning in conflict with another person. And here's what's remarkable about it. It leads to depression and isolation and anxiety and joylessness. And I don't know a person who wants any of those things. And yet all of us deal with conflict. And most of us have no idea where it comes from. So I'm, I'm not even getting the text yet, but I need to teach you this principle. I do a lot of premarital counseling. I always walk through the same beginning place. It's where conflict comes from. 100% of the time, conflict comes from the same place. Unmet expectations. 100% of the time. You expected somebody to behave a certain way, to treat you a certain way, to do something, and they didn't. And when they didn't leave up, live up to your expectations, conflict emerged from it. Now, here's the problem with that. If your expectations were always fair and right, that, that wouldn't be an issue. But your expectations are so often off because your heart is broken. There, there's a passage of Scripture. It, it's profound. Jeremiah 17.9. It says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can even understand it? In other words, your heart is jacked up, therefore the world you live in is jacked up. That's, that's the truth the Bible's trying to give us. Our conflict is born from a broken heart that, that brings up un, 
unrealistic expectations that create conflict with everyone else around us. So here's what I'm trying to say. You have all this conflict orbiting you and, and your temptation is to go, well, it's my, my mom and dad or it's my spouse or it's my child or it's my boss or it's my friend or my neighbor. But I want to I wanna quote the great theologian Taylor Swift. <laughs> it's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. That's about as big of a truth bomb as you're ever going to get from Taylor Swift right there. I'm the problem. It's my heart. If conflict is orbiting around me constantly, there's a center place, and that center place is me. And every single one of us can say the exact same thing. I'm the problem. It's me. It's my heart that's broken. All this conflict, all this weight, all this brokenness, it's right here. And the moment you humble yourself enough to admit the problem is you, that's when you can finally find healing in your life. Because there is a pathway to what you need. The opposite of conflict isn't the absence of conflict. It's peace. And sometimes peace comes even in the middle of conflict. And today I want to teach you from God's word, from a, a passage of scripture you probably have never heard preached this way before, that is actually the pathway to find peace, resolution to all the conflict in your life. It's found in the book of Exodus chapter 18. So I want you to open your Bible. Exodus chapter 18. We're going to pick up in verse 13 in just a moment. Now I know we have guests. I want to let you know what we're doing. Uh, we are mowing through the book of Exodus, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. It, we started last year, we picked back up this year, and we're, we're going through. We deal, dealt with the first half of chapter 18 last week, and we were reintroduced to a man named Jethro, who was the father-in-law of Moses. He had married Jethro's daughter, Zipporah, and so uh, we met him a number of chapters before in the land of Midian. Now Jethro has come to see his daughter, Zipporah, and Moses and their kids, and last week, we heard about how Jethro came to genuine faith in Yahweh God as he heard the story of God through Moses, where Moses shared the testimony of all that God had done to the point where Jethro bows in faith to Yahweh God, this, to him who would have been a foreign God because he sees the miracles of Almighty God. And now here he is a day later, and as a brand new believer, he is about to drop, he's about to drop this truth bomb on Moses that is profound. Open Moses' eyes to something he can't see. And it all has to deal with conflict and how to resolve it. So that's where we're going to start. Exodus 18, beginning in verse 13. Here's what it says. It says, The next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. And when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, that's, that's conflict, when they have conflict, when they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. So I'm going to stop right there for a moment. You have this encounter back and forth with Jethro and Moses. Now, I don't know what Moses expected his father-in-law to say, I think maybe he expected him to be a little impressed. Like here are these hundreds of thousands, million plus people, and they're all coming to me. But instead of being impressed, Jethro says, what are you doing? This is crazy. People are lining up from the beginning of the day to the end of the day just to talk to you. This isn't good, Moses. Now, if I ever start to feel sorry for myself about how much conflict I have, I go right back to this passage and I read it again. From literally the moment the sun comes up to the moment the sun goes down, people are queued up, who knows how long, miles in the middle of the desert, waiting to talk to Moses. 
because they have conflict after conflict after conflict and they want him to resolve it. They have conflict because of the same problem we have. Their hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately sick. They're broken and so they fight with each other, but they know God's ways are the only ways to find resolution. But here's the problem. They don't know God's ways. In this particular part of the story, only Moses knows the ways of God. The law is actually not going to come for another two chapters. We're in chapter 18. The Ten Commandments come in chapter 20. And then after that, you have the rest of the law of Moses coming in, in the rest of Exodus and then Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And so they're about to learn it, but right now they don't have it. All they have is Moses, and he's the only one who knows right and wrong, and so they have to go see him. Now, I, I want to just help you conceptualize for a moment the magnitude of what Moses is trying to do here. So if you were to go over to the book of Numbers, I believe it's chapter 17, they take the first census of the men who are of fighting age, and there are over 600,000 men, age 20 and up, who could be a part of the army of God. Now, most conservative historians will say if there's at least 600,000 men, 20 and up, then if you include men younger than that, 19 and down, and all the women and children, put those together, you at least have about 1.5, maybe all the way up to 2 million people that Moses is trying to care for. And 100% of the conflict of this 1.5 to 2 million people are going to one person to get resolution. Now, let me, let me frame a little uh, perspective here by thinking about my role. Now, I am so grateful. I'm honored to get to be the pastor of this church. I love what I get to do here. And there are about 3,500 active participants who are here on our Sunday mornings and involved in the life of our church between our three campuses. And, and I, I've been given the, the beautiful responsibility to shepherd these 3,500 or so people who make up this church. Now, if 3,500 people, all human beings, have conflict, and if I was the only one who could resolve their conflict, so let's just say you don't have the Bible on your own, you don't have any means of deciding right and wrong. You have to come to me. Every single argument you have with your spouse, if you want to have resolution, you got to come to me. Every single argument with a child or a parent, you got to come to me. Every single community group issue that you have, you got to come to me. So if I were to meet every single day, like take my lunch hour, seven days a week, 365 days a year, to meet with you when you had conflict, do you know how long it would take me? to meet with you for, to handle every single conflict. If y'all came two by two to deal with your conflict, it would take me almost five years just to handle the conflict you have right now. And that's meaning no new people, no new conflict, five years. Just, just imagine for a moment, like you're having a fight with your spouse and you call up to the office going, Jason, we need an appointment with you. And my assistant goes, okay, uh, let's see, October, 2026, around 11 a.m., are you okay? That's not going to work for you to have to wait three, four, five years to meet with me to resolve your conflict. And that's with 3,500 people. Moses had 1.5 to 2 million. And he's trying to do that very thing, handle every single one of their conflicts. He had a church, a congregation, over 400 times the size of this big old church, and he's trying to handle it all on his own. And he thinks it's great. Morning till evening, he's over there just meeting with them, and Jethro's watching it, and Jethro comes in going, Moses, what in the world are you doing? You can't handle this load. You're going to wear yourself out, and even worse, you're going to wear them out. So you've got to think about it now. If they have conflict, they have to go queue up. They're not at Disney World where you've got like indoor air conditioning and screens you can watch as you queue up to get on the ride. They're in the middle of the desert. 
They're standing out in the hot sun with no shade for days and days on end because they want to go talk to Moses. Remember that weight I was talking about, that crushing weight of conflict? This is what would compel these people in the middle of the desert to stand for days on end in the middle of the heat just to talk to one guy because this conflict was like a noose around their neck, a weight on their shoulders. They couldn't bear it. And they said, if I got to wait outside all day for days on end, I'm coming to you, Moses, because I need this conflict dealt with. It was ludicrous for Moses to think he could handle it. And so Jethro, out of love, says, Moses, listen, this isn't going to work. But he wasn't, trying to, he wasn't trying to insult Moses. He actually had a beautiful idea. And you hear that idea in verses 19 to the end of the chapter. I want to finish up the chapter today. I want you to see the advice that Jethro gives his son-in-law because it's profound. It's gold. Here's what he says, beginning in verse 19. Jethro says, now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, and any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, and you will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. And then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. So Jethro says, Moses, listen, buddy, let me remind you what I taught you when you lived with me in Midian. If you got a big whole group of people, all you got to do is just break them up into smaller groups. You got you to let other people share the load with you, Moses. This is too much for you to try to care on your own. You got to take that burden and put it on others. What Jethro is doing here is he's just reminding his son-in-law how to shepherd sheep. I, I don't know if you remember this, but Jethro is a shepherd by trade. When we first met Jethro, a number of chapters before in the book of Exodus, it was because Moses was defending his daughters who were shepherding sheep. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us how many sheep Jethro had, but conceivably, he had thousands and thousands of sheep. He was likely a very wealthy person. And his daughters, and back when we first discovered uh, who Jethro was, his daughters, one of them whom was Zipporah, was tending some of the sheep, trying to go to a well to give them water. And there were some ruffians who were bothering them. And Moses comes in and saves the day. They take Moses back to Jethro. And Jethro says, here's my daughter Zipporah. You marry her. And then Moses, for 40 years, lives in the wilderness, the, the land of Midian. And do you know what he's doing for those 40 years? He's learning to be a shepherd. His father-in-law Jethro is teaching him how to shepherd the sheep. And he's teaching him these same principles. He's saying, Moses, when you got thousands and thousands of sheep, what you do is you break them up. You make sure you got shepherds over thousands, shepherds over hundreds, over fifties, and over tens. And that way, every sheep can be known and cared for. Someone can seek after them and make sure they're okay and they can drink their water and they're healthy. This is how you handle sheep. And he's going, Moses, don't forget what I taught you when you lived with me in Midian. Look, I know there's a lot of people, Moses, but you can't shepherd them all by yourself. Break them up to thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. That's how you care for the sheep. He's just reteaching him what he taught him back in Midian. Now, I want to pause here, and I just want to say this is why I'm doing what I'm doing right now this particular year. If you've been a part of our church for any length of time, you know how important shepherding is to me. I've been talking about this again and again and again because God has convinced me 
that even with just 3,500, I cannot shepherd you. I can't know you all by name. I can't know your needs and care for you. It's not wise for me to try to do so. It is a burden I cannot bear alone. And so I'm trying to set up, much like Jethro gave to Moses' advice, the same structure in our church. I have what are called campus pastors who help me. I oversee the thousands as God has called me to this role. And then I have campus pastors to help me oversee the hundreds. And they have coaches who help oversee the fifties. And in the real bread and butter is we have community group leaders who oversee the tens, who know them by name, who can care for them and watch over them. We're just taking the structure here that, that Jethro told Moses to do. Now I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna pause real quick and I wanna say, I don't yet have enough people in the tens category, enough people to help me shepherd this. And I need people to help me bear the burden I can't bear it alone. And I believe God is calling some of you to be a part of this with me. And so at the end of the service, I'm gonna tell you what you can do if God is calling you to help me carry this particular burden, this load, and help me watch over the tens. But I'm not actually gonna do it right now. I had originally stopped in, in my thought of this sermon. I was gonna tell you how to do it now, but the, the Lord made it really clear for me that if I do that now, I'm gonna distract you from the truth of this passage. Because that's not actually what this passage is about. I've heard, I've I've, in my life, never heard this passage preached any other way than how to structure the church, how to watch over the people, thousands, hundreds, fifties, tens, as if it's almost like a business principle, like this is how you manage things, you gotta pyramid it up and break it up. But that's not why this story is in the Bible. I'm gonna teach you something that maybe you don't know. It's something, it's a big old fancy word, it's called hermeneutics. It's uh, appropriate Bible interpretation. How do you rightly interpret the Bible? One of the chief principles of hermeneutics, of Bible interpretation, is the only way to understand a particular passage is to look at it in its context. What comes before it, what comes after it. And this story is no different. I hear it all the time plucked out of its context and people just focus in on that, that pyramid structure. But that's not why this story is in the Bible. Moses put this story in the Bible for a very different reason. You just gotta look at what comes before it and what comes after it. So this particular passage is a hinge point in the book of Exodus. So everything that came before this particular passage, this was all about the Exodus moment, how they were slaves in the land of Egypt and God came in great power and liberated them and now they come into the wilderness. And this story hinges because everything that comes after it is gonna be the law. You have chapter 19, we'll get to it next week, they go back to Mount Sinai. Chapter 20, you get the Ten Commandments. And then you read the rest of the book of Exodus. It's almost entirely the law of God. How do you deal appropriately with God and with one another? And you go over to the next book, Leviticus, it's all law. Go over to Numbers and Deuteronomy, it's mostly law with some stories interspersed. But this hinges now the story of God to go to the law. And there's a reason why this story is here as a hinge point. Because Jethro discovered something Moses hadn't seen yet. As long as the, the law is hidden in the mind of Moses, all the people would have is conflict for the rest of their days. I want you to look back at verse 20. There's a very specific reason why Jethro gives him the advice he gives him. So Jethro is talking to Moses in verse 20. He says, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, take all the law and the statutes out of that big old brain of yours and put it into their minds. All the stuff that you know, they need to know as well. You gotta teach it to them. You gotta give the law to them. And then what happens right after this? They go to Mount Sinai and they get the law. This is just showing the reason why they need the law. Because once they have the statutes and decrees of God, then verse 23 will happen. Go back and read verse 23. 
Jethro says, Moses, if you do this, God will direct you and you will be able to endure and all this people also will go to their place in shalom, in peace. Remember, I told you earlier, when your heart is in conflict, the thing you most need is peace. It's shalom. It's a resting from all the conflict and what that creates inside of you. And he says, if you'll give them the law, if you won't just keep it, make them come to you, but give them the law, then they'll go back to their home in peace. So the whole reason the story here is to make us hungry for the law of God, the one thing that can resolve our conflict and bring peace. And so the law comes next, gets us hungry for it. Now this, this is truly the hinge point of the book, and it sounds like everything is going to be great once the law comes. There's just one teensy-weensy little problem. It didn't take away their conflict. It didn't work. Like they got the law of God, and then what remained was conflict. They kept on fighting and fighting and fighting. The whole story of God is a story of them fighting against each other and God. I mean, you go on from the Pentateuch, the, the first five books of the Bible, and you go into Joshua and Judges. You know what they do? They fight. You go over to, to Samuel and Kings and Chronicles. You know what they do? They fight. You go over to the, the major prophets and the minor prophets. You know what they do? They fight. Conflict all over the place. They got the law of God and nothing was resolved. Now, I'm not trying to tell you that God failed or that God's law doesn't work. That's, that's not the, the point I'm trying to make. I'm just trying to tell you there's, there's a truth that I don't think Jethro understood. I don't even know if Moses fully understood it. And it's that the law of God, when it's outside of us, is only good for one thing. It's only good to show us how screwed up we really are. But it can't actually fix our hearts, not from the outside. Have, have any of you ever heard of a nuclear stress test? Y'all know what that is? Some of you do. Yeah, you probably had one before. My, my wife, who's watching online, she texted me and said, hey, we're watching. So, uh, hey, baby. Uh, so here's, here's what she had to do. I didn't ask her permission. Sorry, I should have asked. Uh, a few years ago, she had to have a nuclear stress test done because she had some signs in her heart that were a little bit troubling. And so we went in, and it was, it was really pretty funny because the average age was a lot older than my wife. <laughs> but we were there together, and uh, getting ready. she had to drink a dye that goes inside you, makes you sick as a dog. It's terrible, isn't it? And then she had to go on a treadmill and do some running and walking to try to get your heart rate up. And praise God, we got the results back a, a few days later and, and everything was okay. and We didn't have to do anything profound. But there's one thing I knew for sure going in to that nuclear stress test. It was not going to fix her heart if there was a problem. All it was going to do is reveal if there was something wrong with her heart. I mean, I knew that going in. I knew that when she drank that tonic of poison to help like put the dye inside her, that it wasn't going to heal her heart. I knew that getting on the treadmill wasn't going to heal her heart. The whole goal of it was just to check the condition of her heart. That right there is a perfect picture of what the law of God does. The law of God is a spiritual nuclear stress test. It cannot fix your heart. It can just show you how screwed up your heart really is. And every time you look at the law of God in the Bible and you read all the commandments, what it's supposed to do is show you that your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it? Just to prove to you that your heart falls under Jeremiah 17, 9. In fact, this is the exact thing the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament. Now, I'm about to get a little Bible drilly on you, so you don't have to keep up with me. The words will be on the screen, but if you want to, I'm going to go to Romans chapter 7, verse 7. I want to read as the Apostle Paul talks about what the law can do to make sure it's really clear how it's working in you. Romans 7, verses 7 and 8 says this. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. 
For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. So he's saying that it was actually the law, the commandment, that made me realize what was wrong. And it actually made me hunger to do what was wrong. Now, Paul knew that as soon as he said that, people were going to go, oh, are you trying to say the law is bad? You know, the law creates evil? Skip over to verse 13. He explains. He says, did that which is good, referring to the law, the commandment, then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. He's saying the whole point of the law and the commandment is to make your sin look like sin. So you realize when you're being selfish, when when you're being mean, when you're being cruel, when you're being bitter and resentful, when you're the cause of the conflict, hi, it's me, I'm the problem, it's me. That law is supposed to show you that you're the problem. It reveals to you the broken condition of your heart, but it cannot heal your heart. And so what do we do? We wait for a Messiah who can heal our heart. And what I love about the Word of God, if you struggle for centuries in the Old Testament, you cross over to the New Testament and you discover a man named Jesus who came with a brand new covenant that could do what the law could not do in the Old Testament. And there's this beautiful connection point that the author of the book of Hebrews makes. We're going to jump over to Hebrews chapter 8. I'm going to read. He's going to be quoting from the book of Jeremiah chapter 31. But listen to how he puts this all together. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 6 starts this way. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant, the one he made with Moses, had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. And then he starts quoting Jeremiah 31. For he finds fault with him when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. So that old covenant, the one we've been reading about in Exodus, it didn't work. And so verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. He said that old commandment didn't work because all it could do was expose how broken your heart is, but it couldn't heal you. But Jesus comes with a better better plan. He says, here's what I'm going to do. That law was outside you to show the stress test proved your heart's broken. Now I'm going to come inside you, and I'm going to heal your very heart. And I'm going to take the law from being outside you and I'm going to write it on your heart and I'm going to put it on your mind so that you'll be able to obey me like you never could before. I love what Ezekiel says. Ezekiel came a little after Jeremiah, but he says the same thing even more succinctly. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 to 27. Let me read it for you. Here's what it says. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. He says, I'm going to do what the law couldn't do. That broken heart that didn't beat, that was deceptive above above all things and desperately sick, I'm going to rip it out of you and I'm going to put a brand new heart inside of you. 
And I'm going to do it through my spirit. And you want to know how I'm going to do it? What he said in verse 25, I'm going to wash away all your impurities, all your sins and brokenness, all your filth and shame. I'm going to wash it away and I'm going to make you a holy vessel so my Holy Spirit can come inside you. That's why back in Jeremiah, he talks about after this whole thing of write the law on you, he says, I'm going to remember your sins no more. This is what the Messiah came to do. He came to earth and he lived the, sin, the sinless life you and I could not do. Fully obeyed his father. Whatever his daddy told him to do, he did it. Go to the wilderness, he went. Go heal that person, he healed him. Go show that person love, he showed them love. Go to a cross and die, he went to a cross and died. He said, not my will, your will be done. Perfectly obeyed the father. He earned what is called the robe of righteousness. And on the cross, in his obedience, he took the sins of every single person who would trust on him. And he put it on his shoulders to the point where his own daddy rejected him. Do you, do you remember what he said on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The father forsook him because he was filled to the brim with our sins, our brokenness, so that they could be, so we could be cleansed from them, thrown upon his shoulders. He dies, he goes into the pit. Three days later, he comes back to life. And when he comes back to life in his resurrection, he now has the power to take that robe of righteousness he earned and put it around us. And we become holy vessels. His own spirit comes inside of us and that broken heart gets replaced with a new heart. And what we couldn't do before, we can now do. Because we just had the stress test done before. We know our heart screwed up. Now we have a brand new heart because of what Christ has done for us. And all we have to do is believe in him. Listen, there is the greatest news you will ever hear in what I just said that will do absolutely nothing for you until you receive it by faith. It is not enough to know this or it remains outside you. The only way it can come inside you is through faith in Jesus Christ. And the only way that'll happen is when you're desperate enough to do whatever it takes to have that conflict resolved. Remember I told you they would stand outside for days on end in the middle of this blazing sun just to have their conflict dealt with. If it meant waiting for Moses, he was the one who knew God's ways, I gotta go to him. Doesn't matter how big the cost is, how sunburned my head gets, how long this takes, I'm going to do it because I'm tired of this conflict. And it's the same thing today. There are some of you, I've been praying for you, that God would bring you here, or that you'd be watching online, and you would be listening, and you're so fed up with your conflict. You're so tired of this constant anxiety and depression and weight on your shoulders. You're so tired of never feeling joy, of feeling like you're fighting with everybody. And you're broken enough to say, whatever it takes, I'll do it. And here's what it takes. It takes you saying, it's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. It's not my mom or dad. It's not my children. It's not my spouse. It's not that pastor who hurt me. It's not that Christian who was a hypocrite. It's not that person who lives on my block. It's not them. It's me. I'm broken. When you humble yourself that way before God, it's called a contrite heart. He draws near to you. And you say to him, forgive me, God. I'm the sinner. My heart's the one that's broken. Forgive me. Come into me. Change my heart. Own me. And when you do that, he honors that request. And he comes inside of you. And he takes out the heart of stone and puts in a brand new heart. And from that moment on, you begin to experience peace. Now, I'm not promising all your conflicts are going to go away like that. 
I'm not even promising that peace is going to overwhelm you immediately. But you'll get the beginning of peace. And the more you walk with the Lord, the more that peace will grow and grow and grow. And all those mistakes you keep on making again and again where you lose your temper, where you, you harbor bitterness and resentment, all those things that keep you fighting with everybody, those begin to they'll fall off you like scales. And you become cleaner and cleaner. And you, you experience more and more peace. But it comes by humbling yourself and saying, Jesus, it's you or it's nothing. There's a new covenant waiting for you in Christ. You just got to claim it by faith. So I'm going to give you a moment to do so. In just a second, I'm going to invite you to come down front if you're desperate enough and let one of us pastors know, one of us prayer team members know, say, okay, I'm ready. I, I need to be changed. I, I'm tired of all this conflict and this weight. I'm ready to have Jesus transform my heart. You let us know, and what will happen is we'll come and we'll take you around to the hospitality room and we'll just share with you. Make sure you understand the gospel. And if today is that day, you'll have a chance to do the most important thing of your life, to come up into this baptistry and say, I want the old me to die with that old broken heart, and I want to come out of the water a new creation in Christ Jesus with a new heart. And you can begin to experience peace and eternal life today because of that step of faith. But it's going to require you to come in a moment. And so I pray you'll have the boldness. Every bit of the lies of Satan will begin to fill your head and say, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't listen to him. Don't do it. Because he's scared of what's going to happen if you come to faith in Jesus Christ. Whatever's trying to stop you from coming, you spit in his face and you go, I'm not letting anything keeping me from Jesus. I want you to come. So get your heart ready. But let me also say, there are some of you who are in this room and you're a believer in Jesus Christ. You've, you've expressed your faith publicly through baptism. You've taken all that and you're going, but Jason, where's my peace? Why do I still have so much conflict and trouble? Why do I still have so much warring and, and broken relationship, God? Or Jason, why? Where, where's God in all this? Well, I want to say two things. First of all, I want to say some of you may be dealing with conflict, but it's not, it's not your heart. It's somebody else's heart. There's a whole world around you with broken hearts and they hurt and they fight and they rebel. And so maybe there's nothing you can do to avoid that conflict other than pray. And so right now you might be at odds with a child or a parent or a, a friend or somebody that you know and you've tried to reconcile but they're not reconciling and you don't know what to do to get peace. The only thing you can do is pray. So I'm going to invite you. We're going to have prayer team members who are down front ready to come join hands with you and cry out for peace, for reconciliation, for God to break through in that other person's heart. And you can believe that God, Jesus, he is the reconciler. He is your hope. And you can bring that need to him. Let me say one last thing, though. There are some of you, and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, but you're still the problem. It's your selfishness. It's your resentment. It's your bitterness that you're harboring. You're the one causing the problem, too. Here's this crazy thing about the gospel of Jesus. You are both made brand new, and you are being made brand new at the same time. You actually have two hearts in you. You have the old heart, which is slowly dying, and you have the new heart, which is slowly growing. It's a process called sanctification where you are being made holier and holier day by day. But what it means is from time to time, you can go back to the old heart and you can be bitter and resentful and selfish and mean and cruel. And there are times when you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the most important thing you can do is just get on your face and confess it's you. Say, oh God, forgive me. I've been selfish. I've been cruel. I've been mean. I'm the cause of this conflict and I know better. Forgive me. And he will heal your heart all over again. And when you do that, the old heart dies a little and the new heart grows a little. 
We're going to take the Lord's Supper when this next song is over. You may need to prepare your heart by confessing. You can come bow down on these steps and get alone with the Lord and do so. But just respond right now. Don't let conflict, conflict rule. You may need to even leave the room, get on the phone and say, forgive me to somebody or find somebody in this room and say, forgive me. I've wronged you and I want to reconcile. You don't have to live with conflict. You can live with peace because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It just takes you responding. I invite you to stand up right now. I invite the pastors, prayer team members to come spread around the front. If you need to come bow down and confess something in your life, you need to get it off your chest. You need to reconcile with the Lord or with somebody else. I encourage you to do so. If you need somebody to pray with you because there's conflict with somebody and you're, you want resolution, you want harmony with them, and you just want to take it to the Lord, come let us pray for you. Or if today's the day where you're saying, I'm ready for a new heart. I'm ready for peace. I'm tired of this brokenness. I'm tired of this weight. If you need to talk to us, we're ready. Today can be the day of salvation. You just got to come. Pray you respond.